a couple of three questions came up to me, and I, I want to go over something, and Winston asked me to make a comment to you, and I know that Walt is going to wax eloquent on this a little bit later, and so will Bill in his discussion about uh, Gideon and Jesus. There's two questions. In the hardened heart, was uh, the question was raised to me, does that happen to the non I mean, to the believer as well as the non-believer. And I would suggest to you that the hardened heart could happen to the believer just prior to him being taken out. Taken out. I've seen guys get absolutely, men who I know who love God have turned on the commandments to the extent that it would begin to justify their position. They just simply won't face it. Now, do they really, are they as hard as they appear? I don't know. I, don't, I can't look in their heart. I don't have any idea how to evaluate that. Then I see them very quickly gone. Let me let me make a point that I want to be sure we don't get over this. And I am going to be theologically incorrect. I want you to know that when I do this. But I want you to know I don't, it doesn't scare me because Walt's not here. <laughs> here I am, a non-believer. And I approach the issue of my salvation. And in the Bible they call this justification. All right? Do we agree with that? And the, how do I get from here over to saved? How does that, how's that transaction done? Except Jesus. What else? Believe in the blood. What? Believe in the blood of Jesus. Okay. Believe in the blood of Jesus. Acknowledge the sinner. It's by the grace of God. Would we agree with that? By faith. And it's the grace that delivers me. Do you agree with that? Question. Is justification an event or a process? Did I say, did I hear yes is what I heard? <laughs> it's an event, it's a process that leads to an event. How many times have guys witnessed to me? Hundreds of guys. Hundreds of times I came across and walked away from them. But there was that time when I said, that's it. I agree. Are you with me? Some of it's it's a lightning bolt. Some of it's just, I just stepped over the grade. I mean, I said, yeah, I, I buy that. It's about time you get over there. And so I entered the great world theologically of sanctification. And sanctification means what? Right with God. Would we agree? It means to be set aside. My question is to you, is sanctification a process or an event? And another answer of yes. Yes. All right. It is an event which leads to a process. When I'm saved and I'm standing right here, how does God view me? Sanctified. Totally holy and pure. Is that correct? Is that actual or legal? Legal. Irrespective of the evidence, God has chosen to see me as holy and pure. Right? That's exactly what He does. Then he launches me on the mission of becoming Christ-like into the process. Are we with me? What we're talking about is, one, a guy over here, the non-believer, and what transpires in his life. And now we're talking the guy in the process. I'm not talking about the salvation event when I talk about what, what we were talking about up here. Grace is the only way across. Works does not get you across there. But works and application are the event to process. And then, of course, the final state... Is glorification. 
You have very little, if nothing, to do with how to get from here to here. I don't know what I contributed from here to here. As a matter of fact, I think it's a little bit less than zero. Yeah. <laughs> how I live over here, I have everything to do with. All right? We'll leave it there. Let's go on. We pointed. Yes. I don't want to get too far into this, if you don't mind. Go ahead. Um, Is that acceptable? Okay, then based on that, when you mentioned that the, uh, uh, when you were talking about the consequences were both temporal and eternal. That's correct. It's pretty obvious what the eternal consequences are on the non-believer. And then I said, by the grace of God, normally we do not suffer the consequences that we deserve because of our behavior. In temporal, thank you, temporally. In temporal. That eternally we will get them all. And internal is the lack of, is what you're saying then, on how we shall live over here then? Yeah, how I live over here is what I do with my life here. Right. And so by not processing that, by not applying that process properly, then... By not applying the Word of God, by, by not being committed to God, by not being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, or by, excuse me, do it, let's do it in a positive way, by being sensitive, by applying the Bible, by trying to reward God, I'm enhancing my position over here. Right. And the lack of that position over there is what you're talking about in terms of the uh, eternal consequences of not doing it over here. Yeah, what I do here can subtract from here. Right. Me being here, I will not get here because of anything I do. I'll get there because Jesus died on the cross. That's the only reason I'll get there. But once he, once he got me over there, I have a lot to do with what I, how I live that. And Walt will talk on that more. Okay, charts. Now, what's the next chart, please? Now, these are just the promises. And I think you've said to the guys, if they want this, that if they'll sign up, you can have all these charts, if you'd like to have them. I'm sorry we didn't have them. They're just too many to copy. Uh, I could have done it, but I'd had to have a 12 book, I mean 12 uh, cartons and everything else to get them in here. I'm sorry, but uh, these are the list of the promises. And if you're going to ever take this and just go try to read, I, I encourage you to get these things so when you come across these verses, you can say, ah, this is a promise, and think of it as a promise. Read Ezekiel at the micro level, not at the macro level. Understand what he's doing at the macro level, but don't worry about it. Read it at the micro level. Are you with me on what I mean by that? Take the pieces apart and enjoy it. It's interesting in all the promises, though, what I, the point I wanted to make was he makes it very clear to you in the promises that I'm doing this on a reason. And I want to teach you that you guys were bad guys, and I want you to come to repentance. I'm going to bail you out, but you're going to realize the shame of your life. Next chart. He had a series of messages and a series of visions. We basically talked about the visions. I'm only going to talk about one of these three up here. I'm going to talk about the issue of our time. And one of the attributes about God is that God's view of time is not our view of time. God doesn't live in the same time cycle we do that He does. And a lot of times we get confused about time because of a component of God's nature, and that's called a God of long-suffering. Now, what the deal is, if we would turn to 12, and, I'm, and I have it written down. I'm going to read it. You can turn to it and mark if you'd like to. Chapter 12 of Ezekiel. In verse 22, it says, Son of man, and that's Ezekiel, what is the proverb that your people, or the Israelites, have about the land of Israel, which says the days are prolonged and every vision fails? What's he saying? It says all this stuff about destruction, that's in the future. Just don't worry about it. Eat, drink, and be married. That's what's going to happen this time. Verse 27, Son of man, 
Ezekiel. Look at the house of Israel. It is saying the vision that he sees is for many years, many days from now. And he prophesies a time far off. Verse 23, God says to Ezekiel, Go tell them, therefore, thus says the Lord God. I want you to be sure you understand it's from me, God. I will lay this proverb to rest. And they shall no more use this proverb in Israel. But say to them, the days are at hand and the fulfillment of every vision. It's coming to happen and you can't stop it. Now I thought about that when I read that. That the character trait of God is one of long suffering. I get confused in his timetable of time. I become very, very, I become very convinced that the greatest time on earth that has ever been in it's all of its history is my few short years on this earth. That all of it revolves historically around me. I'm a very me-centric guy. All of history, evidence of that is if you ask me about my family, I'd say, oh, well, I'm married to Connie and I've got these kids. I never mentioned my mother and father. You know, my mother and father had a lot to do <laughs> with what I am and what I do. I don't ever mention my grandparents. Went to my grandparents' gravesite two years ago and been over there in 30 years. And I went over that gravesite and sat down and I know how strong this man was. This was a strong man. A forceful guy in this small town he lived in. He was a man of importance. And you know, some journeyman was mowing the grass with a mower over the top of his grave. I said, that's indignation. There's an important man down in that ground. And you know, that guy didn't even know who he was. Whew. The wind blew over and it was gone. And my granddad was convinced that the time he lived on the earth was the singular most important time. God doesn't look at time the way we do. Two truths you must know. First is we forget that God, though He's a God of long-suffering, has a point of no return. We've already talked about that. Second truth, to stay in the race to be God's people, we must always have a sense of shortness of time. Now guys, at my age, as I said to you last year, I see the end of the runway. That's an advantage I have over you. I see the end. I see the lights going out. I see, I got to get this dumb airplane lifted off the ground or I'm in deep trouble. The days have to count. We have two major wake-up calls. Either Jesus will come back or you'll get the news you're going to die. And I assure you, that is a wake-up call. But we got to remember the shortness of time. In 2 Peter 3, Peter addresses this question again that was in Ezekiel. And I'll read to you verse 2 of chapter 3. I've said all this that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior, knowing first that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of Jesus coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. What are you sweating, they say? He ain't coming back. And yet the driving motivation in the Bible and in the New Testament is the second return of Christ. Three points I think you must consider. Let me, let me give you... Yeah, let me give you one uh, point here. One point. We think our uh, long-suffering is the length of time determined only by God 
to transact His justice in concert with His grace. Did you hear me? If He transacts His justice too quickly, you say He's not a God of grace. If He's all grace, He says there's no justice. He says, no, both are true of me. I am a God of grace. And I am a God of justice. And my long-suffering allows me to transact that. Now, the problem with that is that grace and justice are in a tension and they're opposites, and we have trouble putting them together. But only through God's suffering, long-suffering, are these two, trust, uh, these two truths reconciled. And because He gives us long-suffering, we get dull, and we get sluggish, and we drift, and we sense no sense of urgency. And we begin to get confused about the reality of God. On one hand, I'm so grateful He's long-suffering, I can't see straight. But my senses get dulled. Three, four applications. Three applications. We must live each day as it's the last day. If you cannot justify what you are doing before the living God, don't do it. I remember in 1989, a book came out that said, 89 reasons Jesus is coming back in 89. Remember it well. I had a friend of mine lean over to me when the guy was talking about it. And he said, you know, if I really believed this book, I wouldn't paint my house this year. <laughs> and we all laughed and everything. And I thought about it. And I said to myself, if I can't be painting my house and Jesus walk up to me and I can't justify why I'm painting this, that house as a person of Jesus, I better not paint that house. If God catches me mowing the lawn and says, by the way, what are you doing that for, Gail? And I can't reason to him that as a son of God, I should be doing what I'm doing. I encourage you, don't do it. This type of life demands an eternal perspective to govern your life. You've got to understand, is the mowing of my lawn in the context of my eternal perspective about the reality of Jesus Christ? And if you can't get it there, I, I encourage you to go gravel in your yard. Don't be doing things that are not in concert with you as a newborn child of the God of the universe. Does that make sense, guys? That's exactly what Ezekiel's point was to him. Yeah, and, and, and that we laugh about that, but there's a true statement. And she has have, got to have the same identical thinking. And it's, it's stuff that couples must work on. Point two, the truth is that we are to live our life in expectation of the returning Christ. This is a motivation we have a lot of trouble keeping in focus. Let me suggest that suffering, that the suffering and tribulation that God gives us is expressively put into our lives to help us keep our perspective, keep our focus, and to keep our hope. You should not be a people that runs from suffering and tribulation. But you should be a people that seek the joy in the midst of suffering and tribulation. That, that separates you from the non-believer is the hope you have in the midst of suffering. You cannot, you will not escape suffering and tribulation in your lifetime. You cannot outrun it. Just there's no way. It will catch you. Interesting. How many guys I've known in, in my lifetime who have discovered that they were going to die of cancer and after they learned that they were going to overcome the cancer said, you know, I'm going to give more time to my kids. I said, now that's a discovery. Why didn't you figure that out before you had cancer? What, what did it do to bring into focus you ought to be giving more time to your family in the first place? 
it was because he realized he had a shortness of time. And he said, you know, these people mean a lot to me. Guys, why must that happen to bring you to alertness? God has said to you, Christ is coming back. You need no other warning. And the third point, third application, is clear focus is a function of, I think, six things. One, renewal. Being renewed in the Word, being renewed in your walk. Accepting your salvation is new on a daily basis. And guys, there's a lot of us in here, it gets very old hat. And you never want that to happen. Second point is grow from your suffering. Embrace your suffering. Doesn't mean you don't avoid it. Doesn't mean you, you run and look for it. Don't have to, you don't have to go run and look for it. It's going to find you. <coughs> Tribulation is going to find you. Setbacks are going to find you. Hurt's going to find you. Pain's going to find you. It's how you view it and how you deal with it when it occurs. <coughs> Grow from it. Romans 5, 3 through 5, you ought to have it memorized and you ought to just absolutely bask in that verse. Third, gain a spiritual sp perspective on your life. Guys, the question before the house is, who gets to define reality? You are God. Your neighbors are God. Your company are God. Your wife are God. Your children are God. The newspapers are God. Your congressmen are God. Who defines reality? God says, I and I alone define reality. And if you don't have that, your focus will go out. And if your focus goes out, your sense of urgency will go out. And if your sense of urgency will go out, you will not use these times wisely to serve the Lord. The third point, spiritual perspective. Yes, getting an eternal perspective. Fourth one, elimination of options comes through a life of obedience. We are a people given to options. My teenage child taught me that. Where are you going to go on Friday? Oh, I, I don't know. I, somebody's asking me to go out, and I may go out with him. That's on Monday. Tuesday, we're going to go out. Well, I got a couple of invitations. I'm not really sure what I'm going to do yet. We don't make the decision till Friday. Why? I want to be sure I understand all the options before I decide to commit to anybody. Guys, one of the major interesting things that have occurred in my generation is we're a people with more options than we have capabilities of dealing with. And I want to suggest to you, as I read the Scripture and look at obedience, one of the major things about obedience I hate is that it eliminates my options. Obedience is a spiritual bungee jump. <laughs> but to live a life of clear focus, you must eliminate options. Why? Because when I eliminate options, I walk more and more into the horrid circle of faith. Because if I ain't got no options, my belief in God better be right or I'm in deep trouble. And that's why God says, obey me. And that's the reason obedience will bring you into a reality of God. Fifth point, you must grasp your depravity to have a clear focus. And you must have a great respect for your ability to do evil. Sixth point, you must grasp the accountability and consequences in eternity. If you're going to have a clear focus to go forth, I suggest you've got to think of those six things. Any questions?
Never in my life have I been that clear. Yes, sir. And uh, I guess this is a verse, I remember one verse in Ezekiel, and that was in 3.18 about Ezekiel was asked to warn the nation of Israel, mm-hmm. and if he didn't, uh, his, the blood of mm-hmm. the nation mm-hmm. or the people Call would be on watchman. his hands. Mm-hmm. Then uh, Paul said he was innocent of the blood of the people because he never failed to proclaim the gospel. Is there, do you see a linkage there? Because I feel kind of guilty sometimes. Well, let me say to you, you read that, I, the instruction of a watchman, one of the truths is that I didn't, I'm not discussing is that God always used people to get his job done. And every one of you guys are called to a watchman. It would be interesting to read the rules of a watchman in Ezekiel. I don't like him. <laughs> but what it is is God says, basically, you know the truth, and you better be spreading it. Does that answer your question? Any other questions? Yes, sir. Yeah, Gail, you really blew my mind when uh, you were talking about how do you, if God came up and asked you why you're washing your car or why you're mowing your lawn, how do you justify that? <laughs> I can't, I have no idea. <laughs> well, let me, no, Joe, I think that's a good question. And let me, I'm going to answer your question by not answering your question. But I'm going to, I want to set you on a journey. I'll, yeah. I want, I want to set you on a journey. One of the major roles we've got to do, Joe, I came to Christ 27 years ago, 28 years ago, 28 years ago this month. Hmm, Forget this, this month, 28 years ago. Thank you very much. 28 years. And one of the major parts of my journey is an intimacy with God, that He's real, and He's who He is, and He's not who I dreamed Him up to be, but who what the Bible says. And one of the major parts of my journey is trying to start to see things the way he sees them. Okay? Now, one of the hardest problems I dealt with was not painting the house or mowing the lawn. But one of the hardest problems I struggle with is how do I view my job? Because I got a lot of ego out of my job. I got a lot of self-worth out of my work. Uh, I used it for a lot of things that God said, uh, that's, not what you're, that's not how you're supposed to be using it. So I had a seven-year battle with God on that issue. Now, the problem was that I didn't view it the same way he viewed it. Therefore, I used it for reasons he didn't want me to use it for. Are you with me? Now, one of the other second reasons I didn't want to do it the way he did it is, one, I didn't get all the credit when things went right. And, two, it just scared the absolute spit out of me that I had to trust him for certain things. Like, for instance, my self-worth. So my journey with God has been... A journey of coming to grips with the way he sees my wife, and not just as sexual entity, but as a person who is a spirit who he loves and cares for, for my children as individuals, for my two mothers who have come to live with me, for people who I have no professional respect for, and yet they're children of God. Are you with me? Are you tracking with me? Yeah and my lawn, and my house, etc. And so what I'm trying to do is launch you on a journey of saying this. God, I know I don't see the things the way you see them, but I want to see them, and I want to be your man, and I want to view life the way you view it. Because, Joe, there's enormous security in that environment. Okay. Is that good enough answer? Any other question? Yes, sir. 
Now, this, this is your second question. I mean, we, we, do, we do keep count of all these questions. Your fee for staying here goes up on your third question. No, go ahead. Uh, well, that's nice. I'll keep it brief. <laughs> um, I was just wondering about, uh, you're talking about how God just transcends time. We don't have a concept of it, anything like he does. And in knowing that Christ died for my eternal salvation mm-hmm. at that one event, and I bring that into the present and realizing that it's not just my eternal salvation, but temporal, the temporal condition also, that he died for my here and now condition to live that out. Um, do you believe that we're just as dependent you know, on Christ at this very moment as we are at the time of our death? To have any meaning totally. know, from, from what we're saying. Yeah. yeah. Because God is not shackled with time doesn't mean he appreciates time. He gave me time. He, he put me in time. The reason he put me in time is to understand my need for him. If I live 10,000 years, I say, let's kick back the first 9,000 years and I'll get serious. But the shortness of time and the understanding of it racing by, and you hear people say, she said the 10 years went by. I remember the first 10 years of my life, I thought that it was forever. And I just went by another decade and I said, huh? What happened there? What happened with that stuff? So what I think it is, I think time is to bring us back into focus. But he's not shackled on his engagement with us and how he wants us to use it. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Yeah, Dave. Uh, Gail, the, uh, your six items to, to help you clear your focus, item number three, uh, or actually item number four, the elimination of options. Through obedience. Through scriptural okay. obedience. Okay, and, and I guess what I really, I work with a lot of uh, high school kids, and, mm-hmm. and I think one of the greatest weaknesses with a lot of the kids that I work with is their lack of understanding of their options. And I guess hmm. They, they, they view their, a lot of the kids I work with are urban kids. And, you know, for them, college, they really believe college is not an option. And, uh, you know, an engineering degree is not an option for them. And uh, I guess I'm trying to grasp uh, this, uh, this elimination of options through obedience. What you're saying is I look at all of my options. I put them all in front of me. I know where I'm grounded in my obedience. And things just start falling away real quickly. But those options are still there for my yeah. evaluation. See, I, I don't know your kids, but what's to prevent you from having a sexual relationship with one of those kids? Is it societal or God? See, God inflicts an obedience to God, restricts options I can take advantage of because of my power and who I am. Uh, I can treat employees a certain way. I can run a contract a given way. When I was a salesman, it was not that I was not truthful. It was more. I sold computers. We are not insurance salesmen. My greatest problem was I would be in a meeting and I would know you didn't know. And I would know that you didn't know, but you didn't know I knew you didn't know. And if I didn't say anything, you would never know you didn't know that I knew that you didn't know that I didn't know. And so I just sat there and let you suck, drift right into the trap. Now, as a Christian, I don't have that option. See, I'm not worried about a kid in the inner city not knowing he can't go to college. I'm more concerned with his eliminations of options morally. Now, his eliminations of options of how he deals with certain knowledge. His elimination of options of no authority in his life. 
think I can take him to the other parts of the world if I can establish that in him? Yeah, TJ, how much time do we have? Okay. I, I got time to kill off the next two. The elimination of options, you tie it with obedience. Yes, it is. And, and it obedience, I said, my proposition is, obedience to the Word of God eliminates options. Which I, is, and what I heard over here was more of a passive thing, an, an evaluation of the options and a and choosing. That's not what and, I'm suggesting. and the obedience is, is an active component. The word decide, this was an interesting thing to me. The word decide, the Latin root is decir. And what it literally means, decide, means to cut off. So, so it is a, an huh. engagement of, of choice. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and, and one thing about obedience, it's recognition of authority. It's an elimination of options. And that's two things we miss in our society. I don't want to get into a societal discussion. I'm not worried about a society. You know who I'm worried about? I'm worried about you. I'm worried about me. I'm worried about you. That's what my concerns are. What are we doing as individuals? Don't worry. If you'll do what you're supposed to do before the throne of grace, society's going to take care of itself to a large degree. I don't, want, I don't want to get too far there. Let me stop. Let me stop. Let me go on. Is that okay? Any other questions? Jonathan, am I okay? All right. I want to check with John. Next chart. Oh, what question? I'm sorry. I walked away from you. I didn't see you. You just uh, touched on my question, and maybe it sounds like maybe you don't want to go down this path, but let me just... Throw it out to you anyway. And that is, uh, most of the application you've given to us out of Ezekiel has been on a personal level. Mm -hmm. um, but, the, but the thrust of Ezekiel is on a national level. He is definitely going national. I agree okay. with you totally. Okay. And so, uh, if God is the same today as he, is, as he was at that time, and we know that he is from other passages of Scripture, then uh, what I wrestle with and what my question is is, it, let's talk specifically about the United States of America. How does God respond to us? How do we deal with with impending judgments that are coming our way? And uh, and, and obviously, I individually have to walk in obedience to God. But are there? What does it take to turn a nation around? I guess is what I'm saying. What does okay. it take to to repent? Is it just my individual repentance, or? Are there some things that we can learn about to turn a nation around so that the judgments don't come like they've come on other nations? Okay. And, and I appreciate the question, and, and I don't like getting in the question because I don't think I'm real schooled in it, but let me make a couple of comments, ma'am. And I think this is my best answer. Comment one, the commitment to the Jewish nation, God has no similar commitment to the United States. He has no similar commitment to any nation in the world. The only nation he's committed to is the Jewish nation. No such animal. Second thing I want to take into consideration is what do we do? How do we do it? And what we really cry for is revival. Would you agree? Now we go at it a lot of different ways, but I want to suggest to you that legislation will never bring on revival. But revival could bring on legislation. Are we together? So far so good? And if I understand revival, I think revival never comes from an organization or an institution, but comes from an individual. If I understand how that goes. If that is true then, even going back further, then I think it's incumbent upon every guy individually and corporately together. Don't, I'm not knocking the corporate effort, but individually to begin with you, 
to begin to represent the reality of Jesus Christ in your marketplace. And two of the greatest parameters that can be is the concept of forgiveness, the concept of repentance, and the concept of love. And if we as individuals would represent those traits as a reality of Christ as a beginning, the rest is up to God. Okay, just one other question then on that. And that is, <clears throat> I agree with what you said, except what I, what I've seen in the history of revival is that oftentimes revivals are kicked off by a key leader responding in obedience to the Lord on an individual basis. He gets a vision. I don't, I don't doubt you at all. But there, but there is also an element of, of that, of gathering of people and to corporately together those people are responding in obedience. Um, and sometimes I feel like in our evangelical, uh, circles, we emphasize the individual so much that we don't take seriously enough the conditioning, for example, of the kind of the corporate nature of, of the churches that we're involved in or whatever, the places that we gather as as Christians, we don't take seriously, you know, the, like the question about cutting the grass, okay, where, where do we spend our money corporately? Where, what do we do corporately as, as a church body and a community? Do we spend our money on ourselves? I mean, even our own nice churches. Do we spend our money on ourselves or do we really give to where, where Jesus would give to? Do we really okay. walk into the places Jesus would walk to? Um, so those, those are the questions. Good that, questions. Right. And, and, and I'm not going to give a long discussion on the church into the 20th century. But I want to say to you as... God is, is committed to only one nation. God's strategy with the Jewish nation was a people gathered. Would you agree with that? A people on a hill that nations looked at. They said, boy, that's a godly nation. As a matter of fact, when you read the 36th chapter, what was one of the things he was upset with? Is that you're out of the nation and they're saying, what are you doing away from your land? You're not a nation gathered. That was his strategy. At the time of Jesus, the strategy is a church scattered. Aliens and exiles, ambassadors for Christ. Me going and making up Monday morning, going in the marketplace and dealing with a bunch of non-believers and letting Matthew 5.16, my light so shine before men that they may see Gail Jackson's good works and give glory to God who is in heaven. And how do I transact that only but by the power of the Holy Spirit? And individually learning my commitment to God and letting that be done. Does that abandon corporate living? No. But the single strategy is the church scattered. It is not the church gathered. I would encourage you to think, just for you to think on, that ultimately revival will come from the church scattered. When it becomes too gathered, the revival will slow down. Just a thought. Just think on it. Can we go on, to, go on to the next one? I don't mean to walk away from it. It's a good question. I just want to give you stuff to think on. Okay. These are great messages to read, and I'll leave them alone. And the visions are really, uh, see if there's any one vision I want to talk about. No, I've already talked about that. I've talked about that. No, let's go on to the next one. Uh, hadn't already done the signs? No. Oh, no, I hadn't done the signs. Excuse me. And uh, remember, we talked about all the signs. We get down here to the uh, uh, prophet's baggage. He even had a point where he, he used to pack up and dig a hole in the wall and go out 
to carry his bag out to show him what it was like to leave Jerusalem. So if you read it at the micro level, David, you'll enjoy it. I mean, they're little, they're really interesting little vignettes he puts together to tell them the story. You get just killed because there are just so many of them, you just wear out after a while. So you gotta read them, just kinda enjoy these little things he's doing. Then the 24th chapter, which is the end of the deal. Oh, by the way, 37th chapter is them bones, them bones, them dry bones. I'll go back to nine. In the 24th chapter is the end of his prophecy against Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. And he says this thing that just absolutely paralyzed me. He said, now, the one who you love, the one who you care for, she will die tomorrow. And she will die, and when she dies, I want you to put on your turban and put on your shoes and walk among the people, and don't you dare mourn. Because I want them to learn as a sign of your wife's death that they're not to mourn the loss of Jerusalem because it's the act of God. And they're not to mourn the loss of the temple because it's an act of God. That is me dealing with this, and I don't see him mourning. And I said, whoops, you took her life out as a sign? And that's your God. But I must say, Joe, as I said earlier, we got to understand God's view of things. It's so heinous to us because, one, I love her so deeply, my wife. And two, how could he terminate her life? And the problem we have is God is not nearly afraid of death as we are. God is not, does not view death as a punishment. It's a transaction on the way to heaven or an elimination of opportunity. What does he lament for the sinners when they die? What does he say, I gain no pleasure out of the death of the saints? What does he say he laments for Satan? What does he say he laments for Egypt as he does? What does he say those things for? Because it's elimination of options. They have no more options. They're doomed to hell. And that's its fate accompli. He doesn't change his mind when they get on the other side. But he's sorry they they turned him down. But your death is not a punishment. And your death is not frightening to God. <clears throat> and if you read the 23rd Psalms, you see the picture of a God that's waiting that when the door opens, He reaches over and grabs you. It's not a scary journey. And as He says, there's grace to go through it. If we feel with God, we must come to grips with the God of Job and the God in Jesus' time. In Jesus' time, Jesus is moving along and he comes upon this blind man that's been blind 32 years from birth. And his apostles, guys like you and me, ask him the question, and I would ask him this question, why is this guy blind? Is it because of his sinful parents? Jesus said no. Is it because of sin in his life? And Jesus said no. Then why is he blind, they say? He is blind for this single moment. And Jesus reached over and healed him. I said, time out. 32 years of this life just so Jesus can show off his healing powers? God's got to come to grips with that. Because Jesus was God. And God's glory and God's honor and God's holiness is uppermost in his mind. And it was a worthwhile deal for God to hold that guy blind for 32 years for that single event. And we said that's unfair. 
And God says, who gets to decide fair in this room? Who gets to do that? Because he says, how do you know what his life is in eternity when I take him to me? How do you know the treasures he'll have in him? How do you know that, Mr. Smart Guy? I said, I got no idea. He says, then there's a good chance you ought to just stay quiet. <laughs> and the open salvo of Job's life, right? We, we, here's a great guy. And all of a sudden God says, um, let's just let Job go through a little trial here. So ten of his children die. Bang. Had they done something wrong? Not that we know of. If there is, it's left out of the story. Had, had Job done something that deserves this? No evidence we have from anywhere in the book. So Job unfolds this story of struggle and strain as Job goes through this issue. And at the end of the story, God says, you come to it well, Job, etc., and I'm going to give you a double portion. You remember this? And he says, you had 7,000 sheep, Job, so I'm going to give you 14,000 sheep. And Job said, good. I like that. He said, you had 3,000 camels, and I'm going to give you 6,000 camels. And you had 500 oxen, and I'm going to give you 1,000 oxen. And you had 500 donkeys, and I'm going to give you 1,000 donkeys. And he said, you had 10 children, and I'm going to give you how many children? How many? 10. Wait a minute. I thought we had a double portion. And God said, they're not dead, they're with me. He got a double portion. Do I see that where I stand? No, but God does. Was it unjust about his wife? On a micro level, I would hate every moment of it. On a macro level, I'd have to praise God. Any questions? Okay, next chart. And I, we've gone through the lamentations. And notice everybody laments for our bad guys. Not a lamentation for a good guy here. Read that and enjoy it. It's question to ask is, why does he lament those guys? They can do that in your study on Ezekiel. Next chart. Now, he says 65 times that he's doing this so that they'll know that I am God. Interesting when you pick that up in the reading. He says 14 times God swears an oath on his own promise. He's so emphatic on this happening. Next chart. This is how I list out. I do all this work and you say, you're driving me crazy with all that stuff. But I do this stuff sometimes to understand what in the world is going on. I can't sort it out in the book. And I put it down like this. 41 of the times he says that I want you to know that I'm God. You know who he says it to? His own people. Looks like that's what he'd be saying to not his people. I want you to know I'm God. No, the guys he hammers on are you and me. Forty-one times it goes on up up into Ezekiel, up to Israel, up in here. Now, two other things I'll get off. Eight times he does it to Egypt. That's an intriguing deal. Why he is so fond of Egypt? I'll leave that for you. A little thing you can find out in the book of Ezekiel. And five times to Edom. Now, Edom comes out of whose loins? Who? Jacob. I mean, I didn't mean Jacob. I mean Isaac. I'm sorry. Isaac. So God has this fixation in the book of Ezekiel that they'll know He is God. 
Now we got a problem. Next chart. And the problem is, God is a God committed to His holiness and His righteousness and His glory. And here is Gail Jackson standing down here. And I must say, I don't know how to relate to that. I don't know, because you know who, what I'm committed to? My best interest. Do you agree? I'm totally driven by that. And yet here I'm here. Well, I'll tell you what, God, I'll become totally altruistic. And I'll, it's just you, God. My gollies, I just love you more than anything else. And i got to tell you, that'll last about 35 nanoseconds. Because I'll always dip back in what is in my best interest. And you say, oh, no, that's not true. And I may have exaggerated on 35 nanoseconds. I probably did. It's probably 50 nanoseconds. But I'm saying to you that I am always driven by my best interest. But that doesn't bother God. My problem is, next chart, is how does a holy God relate to me? I mean, here's this guy that, here's this God that has this interest game plan that I don't have any idea how to relate to that. It's just out of my capabilities to do that. This poses a real problem, I think. Next chart. And I think what God did is He gave us at least five. This is my own study, and it may not be complete, and I encourage you to go look at it. He gave us at least five things so that if I'll focus on this, I may never understand this, but if I'll focus on this, it will get me there. Are you with what I just said? For instance, I can say, I want to be a great football player. And you say, well, and I said, but I don't know how to do it. He says, well, if you'll do this many push-ups and this many chins and run these kind of deals, etc., your skills will leap. I want to be a great lawyer. Well, if you'll do these things, but I don't know how to go from here to here. Well, if you'll go this path, it'll get you there. That's what I'm suggesting to you. And he gives you first Jesus. So a holy God can relate to me because of this right over here. I am saved. And in that salvation, I have the mind of Christ because I have the Holy Spirit. He gives me the Word. And what does He give me the Word for? So that I may know Him. What do I study it? So I know the reality of God. So He said, I'm going to give you a little, a little letter that you can just play with for years and years and know who I am. He gives me the command so I'll know what it looks like. And He gives me purpose for living. Now guys, I don't know if that's comprehensive. But I want to say that is a great key for me answering the question, how does he relate to me? And he says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you these five. And you may not know how to relate there, but if you'll focus on these, you'll see a shadow of my reality. Are you with me on that? And that's what he's done. The Word, the Word teaches us God's ways. Just say the Old Testament, I have no commands out of Ezekiel. But I see the reality of God. I understand my hope. I see God's strategy unfolding. Does that make sense, David? But then I also have commands that says, by the way, if you're a little bit confused, let me tell you how that plays out. Do not steal. Do not rata, rata, rata. Love your wife as Christ. Love the church and give yourself for it. By the way, this is what that looks like when you put it down on paper. Is that good? Is that fair enough? Commands as a subset of the word. Correct. He gave us both of these. He could have just given us the Old Testament as a history. And never given us commands. And that would see a great deal if he just done that for us. But he not only did that, he gave us those. I think they're two separate things. Correct. Well put, our Romans, you've got a very good point. Alright? Next great question that stands before us is how does sinful man, how does Gail Jackson relate to a holy God? I see how he's coming this way. But how do I relate to him that way? Well, what do you mean by that? Well, you've got to understand, I have my best interest at heart at all times. 
I want to communicate with God and said, help me, help me, help me. Get me out of this problem. Get me out of this problem. Solve that problem. Help me out of this ditch. Whoop. Sales are down. Sickness in the family. Rata, rata, rata. Help me, help me, help me. Right? How does a guy do that? How does, how do I do that? And I want to suggest to you these things. The major key God gives me is prayer. The problem we have with prayer is that we say, if I pray and God answers, God is a good God and is sitting on the throne. If He doesn't, Satan has snatched it and it just got out of control. I suggest that is not God. We must understand, and the key word is trust God and His reality because of what we learn here, David. We gain this trust that says that as I pray and the answer is yes, I say, thank you, God, that's in my best interest. And as the answer is no, I say, thank you, God, that's in my best interest. Well, that doesn't always look like it's in my best interest. Well, it's because you just don't have all the cards yet. Did Job understand it? Not in a day. And you know when I read Job and studied it, and I, about three years ago I spoke on it up here, what surprised me at the end? God never once apologized for his bad deed. <laughs> never once God said, I'm sorry, it just got a little out of control. And you know we think that's true every now and then, don't we? God just got a little out of control. Whoa, God, you better jump in here and help. You, you got this thing's getting away from you. I'm hurting a little bit more. God says, you may not see the beginning from the end, but it is in your best interest. Yes. Yeah, let's get. Let's not forget how Job's friends reacted too, to that yeah. whole thing. That's true. And I don't know exactly where you're taking me there, but really I'm, I'm interested in how one Job reacted or how I would react when God said, I'm not even going to apologize. When Job goes to God, you know what God, God never once says, Gee, I'm really sorry you had to go through that. But it's a good deal. He never takes that on. He says, it is fait accompli. It is to be understood. It is a good deal. <coughs> Yippee-ta. The second thing I must do, if that's my key to my relationship, I must commit myself with incredible fervor to at least those five things. And then if I understand the algorithm of God, and I may not understand the algorithm, but if I do, he says what will flow is joy, not happiness. What will flow is rest, not the lack of work. Rest, which means I may be working my head off, but I'm confident I'm on the right trail. You know what one of the biggest questions I have every day is when I wake up and I'm, I mean the animals are everywhere. The alligators are eating me up. Am I in the right swamp? That, do you agree? Do you agree with me, guys? Well, I do. You know what rest is? Rest says you're in the right swamp. I'm sorry you had your leg torn off, but you're in the right swamp. <laughs> and most of all, no, no, I strike that. Not most of all. Part of the algorithm is a hope that this is not happening in some silly-nilly way. How do we deal with a God who's concerned here when I'm only concerned in my best interest. If you like to know what these wonderful algorithms means, it means in control and has my best interest at heart, your will be done. Why is hope only part of the algorithm? Why is hope only part of the algorithm? Now, give me an alternative. That it is primary. Uh, as because I think this is primary too. I think the concept of joy, that which may come out of my hope, and rest which may come out of my hope. That might be a true statement. Is that what you're trying to say? 
I was just asking why you qualified Hope, not the others. But if I had to make a, if, well, I, had, I, mean, if I, I had to say, I'd say Hope first, and then. Yeah. And, and, and I see what you're saying. And, and guys, these are just my charts. I, I, these are things that are fairly. This is only about a year old, so I know my life will jump around on my thinking. Will you here. clean it up a little, please? I will try to clean this up. <laughs> I am praying to God about something about you. <laughs> <laughs> In charge. <laughs> yes, sir. Did you get this mic here? You, you had said that um, joy and, and not happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, could you elaborate on that a little bit? I want to tell you that uh, I cannot go in the Bible and find this difference. I can go in the Bible and say to you the word for joy is never translated happy. I can be happy, but not joyful. But I, excuse me, I can be happy and joyful, but I cannot be unhappy. And joy doesn't necessarily come out of that. Joy is a pleasure or an attitude or a grasp of issues that gives me confidence and calm in the times when I am not necessarily happy with what's going on. Can I be unhappy? And be committed to God, Mike. I agree. If I'm committed to God, though, I should have joy. Would you agree with the two? Now, I'm drawing a line that I cannot define in the Scriptures. This is a Gail Jacksonism. But how you. would you define happiness? And you know, I'd, versus joy, I'd say happiness has a self-centeredness to it. It would be, uh, happiness would be the product of things always going the way I imagined they should go. Happiness is a good inner tummy feeling that things are going great. Uh, happiness is uh, all circumstances in a good shape and the, and the enjoyment I have out of all the circumstances looking good. And yet my problem is very not a lot of times do my circumstances always appear just the way I want them to. And I find the more I expose myself to loving people, the less my circumstances look the way I want them to look. So if I understand, or maybe if I can draw something out of what you're saying, it sounds like joy is that peace that's apart from circumstances, and happiness requires circumstances that I consider... I think you did a better job than I did, Mike. Thank you. And I really do appreciate the question. And I, and I do make that... I think that delineation needs to be made. A lot, a lot of, I've heard a lot of... There's always a biblical reference to the division. I can't find it. I can't find it in the Bible. Yes? i got to shut down. Thank you. When you feel joy, rest, and hope in in parts of your life, but not in others, you go right back to your commitment. Yeah. Yes, and you go back to here. Let me say, your commitment to God and joy and hope is irrespective of what you can see, feel, touch, or understand in your circumstance. If things don't go the way I want them to go, that doesn't mean I don't say they're not in my best interest. It's just a matter of fact, I just hadn't seen the last card played yet. Do you think Job understood that what he went through was in his best interest? Do you? Well, I don't. I'd say that if we could visit with Job in eternity, he'd say, that was a good deal. Now. Now. <laughs> but what calls from us is faith and commitment. Would you agree? 
So I think the baseline, what we're responsible for, is not what the circumstances look like, but our commitment here and our commitment there. Would that be acceptable? And then God has promised this will flow. I have taken more time than I should. You've been a great audience. You're in for a real treat with the other guys. I encourage you to enjoy Ezekiel. It is not an easy book to read. It is a very, very rich book. i got to tell you, it is rich. Lots of stuff goes on in there. I would encourage you to take the next year and just kind of dabble around on it. If you like these charts, you can have these charts. Uh, I really pray for you guys that you have a great and wonderful year. I hope the rest of the weekend just blesses your socks off. And I know you're in for a real treat on some of the discussions that are coming up. And I pray that God will uniquely touch your heart and that we will not see each other next year, but that we'll be in heaven. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this time. And we thank you that you have blessed us with the beautiful creation and the snow and the people and this wonderful ranch. Bless this uh, time to your glory. Let us understand our commitment to your glory. And, oh, God, we thank you for the book of Ezekiel. And above everything else, we pray that your son Jesus would return now. Amen. Thank you, guys. Good being with you.